the perfect combination of versatile athleisure and training apparel has arrived. Thanks to the visionary minds of New Balance, Clutch Athletics, and Rich Paul, the designs reflect the heart of the athlete and the spirit of the community. With rising defensive football stars Will Anderson and Chase Young on the roster, Clutch Athletics brings the best innovative gear to all athletes, giving them style and performance on and off the field. Learn more and purchase Clutch Athletics at NewBalance.com. Welcome back to the Cover 3 Podcast with your hosts, Chip Patterson, Tom Fernelli, Danny Cannell, and Bud Elliott. It's your call for the best college football coverage from National Signing Day to the National Championship and everything in between. CBS Sports presents the Cover 3 Podcast. And welcome back to the Cover 3 Podcast here on CBS Sports. That's Bud Elliott. That's Tom Fernelli. I'm Chip Patterson. It is ACC Coastal Day here on Spring Gleaning. Uh, very excited about that. That means we get to talk about uh, the the hype train that is the Sleeping Giant, the uh, U and its backness, uh, Justin Fuente, which, you know, Maybe maybe we're looking at it in slightly different light, uh, given the events of the last week or so. Of course, our Bronco respect meter. Jeff Collins working on building Georgia Tech uh, back into an ACC Coastal contender. Uh, the Pitt Panthers and the always entertaining Kenny Pickett. And, of course, the Duke Blue Devils coming off a 2-9 and nine season. But before we dive on into the ACC Coastal, we want to give all y'all a heads up because uh, there is a head coach in college football. He's not an ACC head coach, but he's you know, pretty notable. His name's Nick Saban, and he was on with our buddy BMAC on All Things Covered. That is Bryant McFadden and Patrick Peterson's podcast on the CBS Sports Podcast Network. The show dropped Wednesday, so it should be available for all of you to go and get it. Uh, really interesting stuff. It's available on all pa- podcast platforms and YouTube. They got Nick Saban talking about the potential of an expansion to the eight-team playoff, uh, conference-only schedules, how long he wants to be coaching, a little trip down memory lane. Do y'all remember when the Dolphins nearly got Drew Brees? Uh, Nick Saban's going to sort of take you back into everything that was going on with uh, that physical. Uh, and speaking of quarterbacks, always great to hear uh, what Nick Saban has to say. And it, it's a shocker to no one. Uh, he really thinks that you just need to be able to distribute to others, right? Isn't that the most like Nick Saban approach ever? He says uh, the messages to quarterback, you don't have to win the game, just distribute to others to give a chance to win. Uh, I think that is a, that's, listen, you can, you can set records doing that as Mac Jones has proven to be a very uh, productive game manager. Again, that is all things covered. It is uh, Brian McFadden, BMAC and Patrick Peterson's podcast is on the CBS sports podcast network. Nick Saban is this week's guest. Go and check that out. The uh, Nick, Nick Saban figuring out a way to make game manager, uh, something where you can be throwing for what 33,000 yards and you know 35 touchdowns and something like that it it's truly like the next level of sabinization right yeah i i love the evolution of just turn around hand the ball off and don't put the defense in bad spots to just distribute just distribute to the right people yeah like from 40 carries a game for Derrick Henry six years ago. Now all of a sudden to the point where we're just uh, pitch, just just pitching it around. Little quick slants, little bubble screens. We're just uh, what we're going to do is we're just going to get the ball to Devonta on the court. You know, just figuring out ways to uh, to get it done. Very very cool I mean, stuff. Chip, technically, 
40 carries a game is a distribution. It's just a very tightly clustered distribution, (laughs) right? And if you spread it around it, everybody, Devontae and and Judy and all those guys, it's just a a little bit wider distribution. So Saban would say he's always been committed to the distribution process, right? We're just changing the the range of distribution here. Absolutely. Uh, All right, let's go ahead and dive into the the ACC Coastal. Uh, I would like to begin... Uh, with the North Carolina Tar Heels. Now, remember last year we went uh, one division, and so there was no uh, ACC Atlantic champ, no ACC Coastal champ. There was also ACC member, Notre Dame, uh, that finished in that spot, second to Clemson. Now, actually, they had the the top spot in the league because they had the head-to-head win against the Tigers in South Bend. Uh, you know, Shout out to rushing the field in the middle of the pandemic and all of that. Uh, North Carolina, I think... I'm going into this year, North Carolina and Miami are probably the teams that I power rank at the top of this division. I, I'm going to give North Carolina a slight edge, uh, basically with the, with two things in mind. Number one, even though we are losing a uh, thousand yard rusher, Javante Williams, thousand yard rusher, Michael Carter, even though we are losing uh Deami Brown and Daz Newsom. I mean, the, the yards and the production there is uh, very, very notable, but you still have Sam Howell and you've got a North Carolina team that even with those players opted out, played all right uh, against Texas A&M in the Orange Bowl. Now, how much did Texas A&M care? Yes, I think all those things probably could be taken into consideration, but the Tar Heels held a lead in the fourth quarter against a team that finished number four in the AP poll. I think that is significant. Defensively, they were a very young, green, thin team early, and they have not only grown up uh, across the course of last season, but that means they also bring back a lot, including uh, Tony Grimes, who instead of being a senior in high school, school going through his fall semester was suiting up for North Carolina and really starting to flash at the end of the season. And we've got, uh, we're good. We've got some young names to be able to look at at the wide receiver position that are going to step out, but also some veterans as the super seniors have allowed Bo Corrales to come back uh, at wide receiver. And then they also get Garrett Walston at tight end offensive line, mostly coming back. It was a group that, um, you know, again, took a little bit for them to find their five and be able to gel. But I look at North Carolina and I, is it my homerism? Is it my overreaction to the orange bowl? Uh, I I feel pretty confident giving them the edge over Miami as the coastal favorite in my eyes right now. Chip, I I agree with you on that. I, I full disclosure, I spent way too much time listening to the inside Carolina podcast prepping for today. And like, I'm usually trying to spend about 45 minutes per team here, just, you know, but on the previous day, you had been on in the background I listened for like an hour and a half. They, they had both Jay Bateman and uh, Phil, Longo. And Phil Longo on and then had, had nice roundtables after it. And those guys are usually pretty straightforward, and they're, they're certainly high on this team. I mean, I think, I think the top six offensive linemen as far as number of, of snaps return, that's a big thing for them. Sam Howell is back. I'm not really all that worried about the loss of the running backs, although I agree they were, they were good players. They get transferred to High Chandler from Tennessee. Receiver, I think, is a question for me on offense, but I know they've recruited the position very well. But like Bill Connolly's research shows, you know, losing that much production at receiver is potentially a cause for concern. I'm just excited about this defense, right? I, I think Jay Bateman's a good coordinator. Um, last year, and, and he said this in his interview, he was like, look, we had to play Tamon Fox at defensive end in a 3-4, which is like maybe you could get away with him playing D-end in a 4-3 because he's really like a true outside linebacker type. He's having to play five tech against Notre Dame, and they're they're running multiple tight ends and just getting, it was just getting caved in. And I think it made it so where North Carolina's defense didn't look as fast as it truly was because people were attacking him so downhill last year and so head on. 
they got some dudes who can run on that defense. That secondary, I think, should be really, really good. But now, if I wrote this down correctly, I think those guys said they have nine dudes who are 285-plus. And look, I don't know which of those guys are going to be starters for them on the defensive line. But given how they've recruited and given how they're lifting weights and getting bigger, I'm very confident they're going to have a couple dudes who, who could make a difference there. And they're going to have a lot more beef and, and depth up front and allow that those guys to run around in the secondary. So I, I do think this is the best team in the Coastal going into spring. Yeah, no, <clears throat> it's hard to disagree with anything either of you two have said. This is, I mean, I was saying last year, this is the season that I was looking at North Carolina to really take that step forward. And I felt like they got a little bit ahead of themselves or, you know, ahead of the not ahead of themselves, but they were they were they were they were early. They were rising quicker than I thought because if you look, this is Mac Brown going into year three. He's recruited very well since he got there. I mean, he's not recruiting at like national title Clemson levels of winning the ACC and playing for the college football playoff. But if you compare the way that North Carolina has been recruiting to everybody else in the division, I think that it's really just them in Miami at that kind of that tier, that level of where they've been at. And I think that we're going to see going into this third year that those first classes are maturing. You've got a lot of young talent coming in on, on in this class, which some of it will probably see the field. Some of it probably won't, and you don't have to, and that's a good situation to be in. And I just think that then you throw on Sam Howell, which obviously the most important position on the field is always going to be the quarterback, and you have somebody who might be one of the best quarterbacks in the country. He might end up winning the Heisman. He might be the first quarterback chosen in next spring's NFL draft. So you have that player, which is a huge first step over the rest or most of the ACC at this point. And it's also you're in a situation where it's this is kind of I feel like this is kind of a year where they have to really take that step forward. And if they don't win the division this year with Sam Howell, who is probably leaving for the NFL, maybe it could, you know, we could start to see this thing crater a little bit. I don't think that's going to happen. I think they're recruiting at a level where this is certainly sustainable. But this is this is a huge year for Carolina, both with the expectations and just as far as what I think they're capable of. And I think they're going to be able to meet it. And I, I honestly think we're entering 2021 and we're entering this spring where if Carolina doesn't win the division, it's a disappointing season because I, I we're going to get to Miami here shortly, and I think Miami's a very good team, but I, I just think I, I really like this North Carolina team in 2021. So the what what then is North Carolina dealing with expectations? I mean, this is new, right? I mean, this is something where even Butch Davis's best teams, you'd come into the year fired up based on the the talent that he'd been able to bring to the roster, and like you still find yourself playing Pitt in a bowl game, right? Yeah. You know, like it's just, there's uh there, there is a fascinating split here. And I think that number one, the reason that if you're a North Carolina fan, you're talking yourself into this, not being uh, another one of those years where you think you can contend to be the best in the league, but you're just going to finish at eight and four. The difference maker is Sam Howe, just because he's one of the most accomplished quarterbacks in like he is one of the most accomplished returning players in all of college football. The guy has 68 touchdowns in two seasons. He set uh, FBS true freshman record for passing touchdowns in 2019. Led the ACC in passing yards and passing touchdowns in 2020. I mean, the and also Drake May. You know when we talk about like how this can keep going, but uh, Mac Brown has built out the roster by trying to get the quarterback right and trying to get the defensive line right. Uh, I I think that that's a that's a good recipe for success. Do you, looking at the schedule, you know, you start at Virginia Tech, Virginia at Georgia Tech, Duke, Florida State at home, Miami at home. Uh, the at Notre Dame is going to be non-con. 
the Wake game, is that one of those non-con games? That's one of those non-cons, yeah. Yeah, then you go at Pitt, at NC State to close the season. I mean, they should be favored in all conference games. And do you have any fear? Of, like, do you? What would you set the conference record at uh, for those eight games? I don't think they go eight and zero. That's too much. Seven and one so. or six and two. Yeah. yeah. I mean, like, I I think if I'm setting a conference over under, it's probably six and a half. Mm-hmm. Not counting the weight game, obviously. Right. Which who knows? Yeah. I just I feel like because if you look at their schedule, like they they open with Virginia Tech on the road, but the front half of the schedule is mostly home loaded. It's the back half where maybe it looks kind of it doesn't look as difficult or actually no, it's pretty difficult. And most of those games are on the road. Cause you've got, I know Notre Dame's not conference, but it's on the road. Pitts on the road. NC state's on the road. So that's three road games in five weeks. And you get wake in between the pit and Notre Dame game, which again, not an ACC game this year, but still a pretty big rivalry kind of game. There's a reason they're playing it. And you do get the Wofford kind of cupcake between Pitt and NC state on the road. But I just think at the end of the season, I'd rather be playing at home than on the road. Yeah. At Pitt. That pit game is is a short rest Thursday. Yeah, that's always a little bit scary. Um, makes it tougher. Yeah, but it, I think there's a lot to like about this team. I mean, if the defensive line can take two steps forward, right? Instead of just like I think this year they can get to competent across all three positions and and have some depth. If they can arrive a year early on the defensive line, this team could be pretty damn special. Well, and. Right? It's interesting that on the IC podcast, they mentioned the weights because there were times they looked tiny. They looked yep. young and they looked tiny. And that that still is a little bit of a holdover from like the, we're going to play a 4-2-5. We're going to be skinny. We're just basically going to have a big 12 defense in the ACC. And I, 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 don't, I don't think that that's going to work for North Carolina. Well, last year at times they were playing a two four five. Yeah, I mean they were playing a lot of times where it was what Bohasic and I forgive me, I forgot the other guy's name. Bohasic, Bohasic's a dude. Uh, but then like they were playing, was it Hopper and Fox on the outside, mm-hmm. sort of your two stand up guys and, and trying to trying to trick people. Uh, Surratt and Gimmel on the inside. Yeah. Is is Keyshawn, Keyshawn Silver is the number one player in their twenty twenty one class? He's a five star recruit. Is he somebody that you think, because you, you mentioned like the size that they had, like, is he somebody you think is going to be able to come in and contribute right away significantly? Or is he somebody who is more of a five-star based on where you think he'll be as a sophomore and junior? So with Keyshawn, I think it's definitely, there's a good amount of projection there, but he is athletic enough to, and and I I think that the, the lack of reps with COVID probably hurts, but he has enough size already. I mean, he's six five and a half, two eighty nine according to what Carolina just put out. So big boy, maybe he's not a guy that, that contributes in that Virginia tech game, but maybe he's somebody who it's like, man, our, our regular chargers are getting tired. We know that they run a very fast, fast tempo offense. Maybe he could be somebody who gives you 20 good snaps a game in November. And that could be really valuable. Speaking of up tempo, that's exactly what we saw from Rhett Lashley's Miami hurricanes offense. Derek King comes in, Rhett Lashley comes in, and the Hurricanes, uh, when they got rolling, uh, they could hit those big plays. They would just kind of kind of wear you down, just snap, hustle, hustle to the line, snap, hustle line, snap. And sometimes it wasn't even consistent. 
but then it would spring the home run play and and things would seem to work out. Now, the the issues we've talked about a lot on here, it's a, a group of wide receivers in particular where it really kind of felt like there was no consistency and at times let Derek King down. Brevin Jordan, fantastic. He's gone. Uh, but, you know, Mike Harley, he- hello, let's go. Like, let's, let's, let's get you playing. Let's get you to be a leader in this room. Charleston Rambo also joins that wide receiver room transfer from Oklahoma. Defensively, things get a little bit interesting because Jalen Phillips, uh, the transfer from UCLA was fantastic. Uh, you know, Quincy Roche from Temple uh, coming in on, that was a good like pass rushing duo. And so Jafari Harvey has an opportunity to, to step up and be another difference maker. But sixth year, Zach McLeod is going to be moving from linebacker to defensive end. He was a team captain a year ago. He's, you don't like Zach McLeod? No, I do. I just... Uh, I, I don't know. I'm not sold on, on coming back for a sixth year and playing D end. Okay. Bubba Bolden also in the mix. Tyreek Stevenson comes in from Georgia. Uh, the in, most interesting thing for me about Miami right now, uh, especially in spring is it's defense. Uh, Blake Baker left to go take a job on the LSU staff. So Manny Diaz now has put his hands on the play sheet. He's going to be calling the plays be, and some hurricanes fans have alleged and I don't, I would need to really do a deep dive uh, before I, I feel strongly saying this, but that the Miami defense has taken some steps back uh, in the last couple of years. So it will be interesting this spring to see how the personnel shakes out defensively, what we think the impact of Manny Diaz taking over the play calling, which we won't know to the fall. See what that is because the Derek King and trying to make this offense go, those, those seem to be pieces that we're just not going to know until King tries to work his way back into full health for fall camp, which as of right now, he is scheduled to do. So for, for Miami, like the, where, where are you identifying as the biggest concerns for the hurricanes in trying to be able to take uh, another year where you're coming into it you're looking at Miami and you're thinking, are you going to contend for an ACC championship? But what happened in their two biggest games of the year against conference opponents? I mean, they were just outclassed, Clemson and North Carolina. So what what are the keys to closing the gap with Clemson and North Carolina? I think that we're going to need to see, like this, if you look at Connolly's returning production rating, rankings, this is a team with one of them, you know, I think they were ranked third and they're, they're definitely the most on offense. I think they were 10th or 11th on defense, even with like the Jalen Phillips, you know, moving on. So I, I, I think that... Y- you do need, I think Jalen Phillips is still a pretty big loss because I do think he was a key part of that defense. And I know Gregory Rousseau is gone, but I feel like that doesn't really matter because he didn't play last year anyway. So I think I'd like to see a little bit better play from the linebacker spot for Miami going in, into 2021. I thought that was some, it wasn't horrible, but there were just some moments there where I was like, eh, I don't know. And I think offensively, I know Derek King is not practicing this spring, obviously, but I am interested in watching the quarterbacks that Miami does have this spring because if King isn't 100% at the start of the season in the fall or if he's missing time going into the summer and he's not really getting prepared, like Miami's not in a position with its schedule where it can afford to, you know, be anything less than 100% to start the season because they opened the year with Alabama. And then even after the Alabama game, they're still getting an App State team that has been one of the better programs in the Power Five. And then you follow that up with Michigan State, which is a program that is not the Michigan State of five, six years ago, but is still a solid Big Ten team. So that's a really tough opening to your schedule. So if De'Ara King's not at 100%, 
you're going to need, you might need, whether it's Jake Garcia or, or uh, what's the other kid's name, Tyler Van Dyke. You might need one of those guys to be ready for the start of the year to be your quarterback in some really big games for the Canes. So I think if you look at a talent-wise, this roster from a talent-wise position, it's up there with North Carolina as the best team in the Coastal. I think if Derek King is 100%, it's right up there with North Carolina. But that King question is what kind of puts a cloud over this for me and just leaves some question marks as to how good Miami can be in 2021. Because if he's not 100%, I could see them getting off to a really rough start to the season. And is that one of those situations where we've seen with Miami in the recent past, and I, I know it's a different coaching staff and it's different players, but it's hard to get it out. If they get off to a slow start, do they kind of just pack it in? Yeah, I mean, that, that's that's a good question, right? They used to have, back when Florida State used to beat Miami, uh, they used to have this thing where after they lost Florida State, they would just absolutely crater. It was pretty much an annual thing. Um, Tom, I agree with you. I think their linebacker play has got to be a lot better. If you look at, at Bill Connolly's stuff on them, I mean, 103rd in rushing explosiveness allowed, 94th in, in rushing marginal efficiency allowed. Their pass defense really wasn't that bad. They they allowed more short stuff, I think, than their fans would probably prefer, but mm-hmm. they really didn't allow the deep ball that much, which also I think fits with what you're saying about how they their linebackers and pass coverage uh, were, were not all that good. But I, I think that they had problems last year staying in gaps, and they didn't tackle all that well. Um, Got to get guys on, on the ground so that you're not allowing these explosive runs. I mean, it, to me, a team with Miami speed – should never be 103rd in the nation in rushing explosiveness allowed. Like, that is too many long runs just out the gate. And I know a, a decent part of that is probably the North Carolina game, but yeah. Bill does shut these numbers off after, gar- after garbage time hits. So a couple of those runs when, when North Carolina was making like 100 nothing, those don't really count in this. On the flip side of things, I, I kind of have a couple questions. Chip hit on one. Uh, and I do think, by the way, this Miami team absolutely should be considered one of the, the major favorites to win the Coastal. Like, they are – kind of 1B to, to one, one A for, for UNC, for me. I, I don't think it's necessarily clear like 1-2. They return basically everybody on the offensive line, Yeah, I'm pretty sure. That offensive line did not open holes very well last mm. year. I think when they were able to run the football, a lot of it was because of motion and action, tempo, and teams paying a lot of attention to Derek King. And they were able to hit explosive runs, but they were a very bad team as far as staying ahead of the chains with the run game. I mean, you're talking about, this is a pretty wild split. So they were 95th in rushing success rate and 24th in rushing explosiveness. So on a down-to-down basis, two yards, run game Two stuck. yards, one yard, like stop behind the line of scrimmage, 30 yards. Right. <laughs> there's, there's a Herman Boone quote on this, I'm sure. You know, just, just keep doing it. It's like Novocaine, it always works. Except for the fact that Miami was too often putting itself in bad down-and-distance situations. And this offense, from a passing standpoint, you know, go back to what Gus does. Like we know what Rhett does. I think Rhett's a good offensive coordinator, but this is based on it's a play action style passing game using tempo, trying to set up simplistic coverages from the defense because of the tempo, because you're trying to keep everybody confused that way and, and hurried up. But too often they were finding themselves in second and nine, second and eight. And guess what? Play action doesn't work quite as well if the defense doesn't actually believe you're going to hand it off or they don't care if you're going to hand it off. And De'Aaron King, look, he's a good college quarterback when you take the sum of his talents into consideration, in my opinion. But just as a pure drop-back passer, he's not great. He's okay. Mm -hmm. He doesn't suck. 
but he's not great as a pure dropback passer. So I think too often this team found itself in in passing downs, and it is a team that has to stay ahead of the chains because that's where its explosive plays came to. If you look at that breakdown, a lot of that was you know, they, they, they'd get like second and five when they did get them, and then they would hit people with play action over the top, uh, off the top using that tempo. Uh, Chip, to your point, by the way, about the receivers, man, I know I'm rambling here. Uh, yards per target, Mike Hardley, 9.4. You know what? For number one, that's not great, but it's not horrendous. Mark Pope, 6.6. D. Wiggins, 6.2. That is like walk-on level. That's terrible. 6.6, 6.2, that, that can't play. And drop percentages, by the way, double digits for both of them. Uh, yeah, anecdotally, I've got Mark Pope wide open on a wheel route, dropping it like should be touchdown, like just right off the top. That is the first uh, college football top shot highlight that comes up in my mind right now. Yeah, that's nope. oof. Going back to the offensive line point you were making, but like I just looked it up, Football Outsiders <clears throat> line yards last year. Miami's offensive line ranked 99th. Opportunity rate it ranked 89th. Stuff rate it ranked 94th. It was like it's kind of what you were just saying. They were not doing a very good job of putting them in positions to succeed and put together drives. But they beat the teams they should beat. It wasn't always pretty, but. When they weren't playing Clemson or North Carolina, they they found ways to do it. The Virginia game was absolutely ugly. Pitt game was ugly. Virginia Tech was ugly, but they won, right? Yeah, but I think they're that, a good team. They're a good, yeah, exactly. They're a good team, and they're beating the teams that they should beat. But I think if you're a Miami fan, you want to start seeing them not just beat the teams they should beat, but destroy the teams they should beat, and once in a while, beat a team that you shouldn't. Did Lou Headley go pro? Their punter. I don't know. Burr, um, I mean, he's like 39 years old, so. Well, they, they were number one in punt efficiency by a mile. Yeah. So I'm kind of curious if, if he is back. Um, Does he, will, will he go pro or will he just retire? <laughs> I, he, like their, their punt efficiency is, is off the charts. Like he averaged 47.2 yards per punt. Only only one in eight punts were even returned, and for an average of only seven point four yards, like Pretty his diesel. net average was forty five. That is incredible. <laughs> like he was probably snap for snap the best player in their team by a lot last year, including Derek. Uh, <laughs> Give the punter some best player for Miami on a snap by snap basis. No one's having more success than Lou Headley. Do you think their receivers can develop over the summer without De'Eric? Like, that's kind of a question I have, right? Like, I, I think he'll be healthy for the season based on what I've been been reading and hearing at Inside the, you know, inside the U and whatnot. But, man, I I don't know, man. I'm, I'm kind of curious about the receiver development. Well, the, quarter, the reason uh, I wrote a piece for CBSSports.com just talking about ACC random spring thoughts and the, the reason – one of the things I mentioned for the quarterback two battle is Derek King's had two knee injuries in three years. You know, like any, you, it might not, I'm not wishing or thinking any kind of injury for Derek King, but any tweak, any twist, anything, you're going to be like very cautious and you're going to take him out of the game. So whoever is that QB two at Miami, you might find yourself where it's middle of the third quarter and you're stepping into uh, a game with ACC coastal division championship contention, all hanging in the balance. And you got to be ready to go. So I like I'm not 
I'm not putting the injury prone tag on Derek King, but I can't look at two knee injuries, both to the right knee in a three year span and not think that the QB two is going to be very important. If Miami is going to be able to contend for the coastal division title. Headley is staying by the way, according to Coca. Shout out Coca and shout out to the Miami hurricanes coming up on the other side. One of the most interesting ACC Coastal Division seasons involves a program with a history of running the division and potential hot seat situation. We'll get into that and more next. Selling a little or a lot. Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage, to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is here to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system, wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify has got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 15% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. And sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. And Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Plus, Shopify's award-winning 24-7 help is there to support your success every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash odyssey podcast all lowercase go to shopify.com slash odyssey podcast now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in shopify.com slash odyssey podcast robert half research indicates nine out of ten hiring managers are having difficulty hiring if you have open roles chances are you're feeling this too that's why you need robert half Our specialized recruiting professionals engage with our proprietary AI to connect businesses of all sizes with highly skilled talent in finance and accounting, technology, marketing and creative, legal, and administrative and customer support. At Robert Half, we know talent. Visit roberthalf.com today. Hey, college basketball fans, the madness is right around the corner. And to help you get prepared to dominate your bracket, Gary Parrish and Matt Norlander of the Eye on College Basketball podcast are hosting a fun and interactive bracket engineer event presented by Nissan. So join our college basketball experts, Matt and Gary, along with special guest Kenny Smith on Monday, March 15th at 5 p.m. Eastern time for an hour-long Zoom call as they give you insights needed to engineer the perfect bracket and dominate this year's tournament. You can register for your chance to join this special event by clicking the sign-up link in the description of the episode. Again, To enter for your chance to join this hour-long Zoom call with Matt, Gary, Kenny Smith, trying to put together all the perfect bracket, you just need to click the sign-up link in the description of this episode. I cannot guarantee that we will be talking about camel fighting or leaky black, though I'm sure that if you bring it up, they'll be more than happy to engage you. Hashtag Nell can stay. Shout out to Bill Henderson and UMass Lowell, the home of Elvis Presley. So up in Blacksburg, things are uh, interesting because Justin Fuente finished the year uh, five and six. The real highlight, I guess, for the Hokies would be the fact that they were able to beat Virginia 
you know, right at the end of the season, because I think the tenor and the tone of the conversation uh, around Justin Fuente and around this team would have been really bad because their bowl streak ended. A bowl streak that lasted decades came to a close, and it came to a close with the team voting not to play. Not a great sign, but uh, it's it was exhausting for all of college football fans. I, I don't harbor any sort of blame or feelings towards them. But then we look at Virginia Tech, and we see Hendon Hooker, very talented quarterback. He, he decides he's going to transfer. Do we see Quincy Patterson, who's had to come in and, and save some games for the Hokies over the years? He decides to transfer. So uh, Braxton Burmeister, who arrived from Oregon, uh, first year with the Hokies was last year. That That's what you get at quarterback. But the transfer news isn't uh, limited to the quarterback position. The loss of offensive lineman Doug Nestor uh, and one other from the line to transfer hurts, especially with Nestor going to West Virginia, a team on the Hokies schedule, not to mention a little bit of a regional rival right there. You look elsewhere on the offense, Khalil Herbert is gone after a very productive season. I like wide receiver, what they've got with Trey Turner and Travion Williams. But again, going uh, defensively, we get Jordan Williams as a transfer from Clemson uh, along the defensive line. Was not a superstar for Clemson, but I think he can be uh, a good player. But again, back to the hot seat conversation. Since the start of the 2018 season, Justin Fuente is 19-18. and 18. Um, I mean, the... Do you think that the play from Virginia Tech this season has a ceiling? Uh, I'm not sure what the floor is. That might be even harder to define. But do you think it has a ceiling that can reverse uh, sort of the Virginia Tech fan feeling around Justin Fuente? No. I'm not optimistic about the Hokies in 2021 because I think that a lot of the problems that we've seen that have, or at least the the things that have led to the problems that we're seeing haven't really changed. Like this is a team that it's 2020 recruiting class ranked 76 nationally. Now it improved in 2021, but when you're 76, you can improve by 31 spots and you're still only 45th nationally. When you compare that to the rest of your own division, the only two teams in the in the division that had a lower ranked recruiting class in the 2021 class in the coastal were Georgia Tech at 47 and Duke at 48. Like Virginia Tech was 12 spots behind Virginia, which is not a position that it's typically found itself in most years. It's about 20 spots behind Pitt and then Miami, North Carolina are in the top 15 on their own level. So I'm not sure what could really have changed over one off season to improve Virginia tech, especially when you look at the QB position where you've had a couple quarterbacks transfer out. So you're going in where it's Braxton Burmeister is presumed to be the starter. Maybe you had Connor Blumrick, a former three-star recruit transfer in from Texas A&M, but these, none of these are names where you're like, Oh, okay. That really provides a ton of confidence. I, I just don't know. I think that with all the hot seat talk surrounding Fuente and those kind of distractions, and I, I know like Virginia Tech had to deal with some COVID, a lot of COVID stuff last mm, year that really did derail the season a little bit, but I don't know if having those players back or if being at full strength this year really improves the floor or raises the ceiling all that much. When I look at Virginia Tech and I watch it play, you just get like that three and five, four and four sense. Like it's a three and five, four and four ACC team. That's what I see when I watch the Hokies play right now. I mean, I, I don't see the momentum for the Hokies right now, right? Uh, they were 10th in the ACC in recruiting. I don't think they're bringing in enough quality talent. 
they did a really nice job in the transfer portal last year getting Claire Herbert, who balled out and, and is now gone. Um, I, I The thing is, I actually think Justin Fuente is a pretty good offensive coach and a pretty good like game day coach for the most part. But their defense last year was was bad. I know they had they had COVID issues, as did the other Virginia team, which we'll talk about in a minute. I just don't know if they have like I don't think that the other positions are necessarily primed to step up in a way that will make me feel good about offsetting the losses and the strength of this team last year were an offensive line. Tom hit me with the, with those football outsiders numbers. I know they got to be pretty good. That, that was a nasty old line. Yeah, the Virginia Tech ranked 31st nationally in line yards, uh, 10th in opportunity rate, and 43rd in stuff rate, which isn't great. But still, when you're doing as well and an opportun- taking the opportunity rate and on standard downs, they rank 11th, you can work with a stuff rate that's not great. So you, you, know, you, you had several NFL players, I think, on that line. Now you've got some guys who've gone pro, have transferred out. You, you lost Herbert. I, like, can Braxton Burmeister carry you? through the air or, or using his legs more. I, I'm I'm not confident. I still think this team will be a decent team. I don't think they were a terrible team last year. I mean, they were, what, top 35-ish maybe? Yeah. But they were but, like also at the same time, just to provide the other side of it, they, they were kind of right there against North Carolina. Now they got in a hole early and then, uh, you know, couldn't stop North Carolina offensively, defense, like, once like they couldn't stop North Carolina from scoring once they finally got back into that and made it a real game. Same for Miami, the two teams that we've talked about here and that we believe are at the top of the division. Virginia tech was right in that game uh, all the way down to the very end. But as we sit here doing our spring gleaning and looking at this from a, a hard statistics on the season as a whole, the depth chart, the personnel issue, it is without a doubt a, a, a full tier below those two teams, even if they're head-to-head matchups on the field. And maybe that speaks to your point, bud, about Justin Fuente being a good game day coach. Yeah, I, I, I think so. Um, okay, so since I did bag on the recruiting, I will give a, a shout-out to one guy in their class who, who I like a whole lot. His name's Jaden Keller. We have him listed as an athlete. I actually think if the Hokies try him at linebacker, he could turn into a really good player down the line. Just super athletic. I, I love how versatile he is. And so there, there's some positive positivity for me on the Hokies before I get to my next point, which is man, their run defense was terrible last year. 113th in success rate allowed. Just about the only thing they didn't allow was just a ton of, of 80-yard runs. But if you wanted to get six or seven-yard runs mm-hmm. against the Hokies, guys, you could have it consistently. Saw so um, too many unders die because of that. Yeah, <laughs> and they like not only that, but they tried to get aggressive against it and and stop it because I think they realized they were you were kind of getting bullied at the point of attack and in the second level, and then teams threw it over their head, and they also had COVID issues in the back end, which was a problem. Um, you know, so they kind of went back to allowing the run to prevent the explosive play. I, I know Justin Fuente actually talked about that. I'm interested in seeing how much more aggressively they can play throughout the course of the season with their secondary back because last year they, I think they kind of had to resort to playing everybody back and just try to play umbrella. Uh, but that allowed some pretty serious run efficiency. All right, go ahead. You want to do some galaxy braining? Sure. All right. Justin Fuente is on the hot seat. There is a job opening at Kansas. Yes, I was just about to ask this. Justin Fuente is from Oklahoma. I don't know if Jeff Long is going to be making the next hire at Kansas. We'll see. All right. Right now, signs indicate that it will be Jeff Long. But Jeff Long 
if you look at his history of hiring football coaches, he's not hiring young up-and-comers. He tends to hire established coaches, most of which he's already had a previous relationship. But Justin Fuente, an established head coach at a Power 5 program, entering a season where it could be do or die. Does Kansas, if Jeff Long takes that kind of swing and goes after Justin Fuente, do you think there's a scenario in which Fuente would leave Blacksburg for Lawrence? Because we saw like when he took over at Memphis, Memphis was barely existent as a football program and he built that into something. So maybe that kind of proven track record of doing that would be appealing to Kansas. He goes to Kansas, he gets time. He's got, he knows he's going to have, you know, a a safety net as far as he's not going to get fired after this season, if they don't win. And he gets a chance to build something from the ground up on his own, rather than being in the situation he inherited in Blacksburg where, you know, he's following the guy. I mean, that's, I was going to say, if you're Justin Fuente, do you do it? Do you take that parachute and just jump out? It might depend on your answer to this question. Pretend you're Justin Fuente. If your buyout wasn't still 10 million last year, are you even here this year? That's why. Yeah. It's like, cause when when we restart the clock is the buzzword, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that's why, because it's like when you think of the Kansas job, I know that in like a vacuum to most fans, it's like, well, who the hell is going to want the Kansas job? Coach that might not have a job at this time next year might be pretty interested in starting over somewhere. Is the is Dana Holgerson the best example of that move recently? Yeah, although I think that I I, <laughs> I don't know if I'm comparing Houston's football program to Kansas's. Yeah, I know okay, that's fa- very program, fair. But yeah. I think Houston's in better better condition by far because he's been very much in the headlines. I, I almost called it the Greg McDermott move because back in the day, his time was kind of running out at Iowa State. Creighton job comes open, and it's like, well, Creighton can be a very good job, so you just sort of jump on over and take that. Again, we were talking about a Power Five job, but it is Kansas. Uh, I think that if I'm Justin Fuente, I might do it too. Just yeah, I th- like, and again, there's nothing. I have nothing to base this on. It was just a thought. Um, fascinating, fascinating season hit ahead. Again, as I said, and hey, how about this? Oh, let's get reckless. All right, if he does, Bud Foster, interim coach, bring him back. Let's go. Let's out of retirement. He he gets to keep all of his hunting camo on on the sidelines. You know, he he just comes right out of the deer stand and he comes right onto the field. Bud Foster to stabilize the program when the head coach uh, dips in April. That's the only way that this can go. No, no, it, it'd be a lot more fun if Fuente leaves for Kansas in two weeks and then Shane Beamer leaves for Virginia Tech. <laughs> And now South Carolina is open again. And then Hugh Freeze ends up at South Carolina after all. Crazy. We've done it. We've done it. Okay, let's shift over to uh, their Commonwealth Cup rivals. Virginia went 5-5 five and five last season. Uh, lots of COVID issues, as you hinted at earlier. We've tried to recaliber our Bronco respect meter, tried to let all you Wahoos know that uh, we do uh, hold him in high regard. But I also have a question for you, Virginia fans. It's real hard to get spring football information because you're so daggum excited about basketball and you're so daggum excited about your lacrosse team and you're so daggum excited about your baseball squad that I'm like, where are the spring football updates? <laughs> and I understand that you're the reigning national champions in basketball. Yes, I get it. But sometimes I do think that how often, uh, how often um, a program is talked about is a direct reflection to how much information is being shot out of the content cannon our way. 
And right now, it sure seems like resources around Virginia athletics are dispersed elsewhere. But uh, I've, you know, got we got boots on the ground. We got uh, we got hands in the pot. We're still fit, finding ways to do it. So uh, we look at this, and, and number one, I you got to start at the quarterback position where you got to feel good about Brennan Armstrong. He wasn't healthy throughout the entire season, but I, I think that a he's a he's a really good quarterback for uh, that offense, which I define now sort of like. We're looking because we we said Bryce, didn't we recklessly do the Bryce Perkins to Taysom Hill? Like, you know, okay, the former BYU coach, now we've got the the dual threat player. And now I can feel confident saying that Brennan Armstrong is able to do a lot of what Bryce Perkins was able to do, at least in being a, a real dual threat. The the overall skill position talent, you know, sometimes it's, it's not going to wow you right away and they really are going to rely on Armstrong to make things happen and things to sort of work within the flow of that offense. Defense loses a lot, especially at linebacker. We did mention Joey Blunt, a good defensive back and sort of real key for them. He's back as a super senior. So as we look at Virginia, they go from coastal division champs, uh, you know, playing in the orange bowl, five and five last year. What's, what's sort of recalibrating the expectations as we look ahead to 21? I think, do we know how many starters we have back on the offensive line? Uh, I don't have the number right now. Yeah. See, that's the thing. Cause that, like I was digging through that for myself, Chip, and I I share the same kind of (laughs) frustrations that you have with there not being nearly enough Virginia spring football content out there. But I think that is a key because this was one of the best offensive lines in the country last year. Like for all the flaws that this team kind of had and had to deal with at the quarterback spot where it's starting a, you know, a 45 year old father or three for a while, the offensive line performed really, really well, and it kind of gave them a solid foundation. So depending on how much is there, I think that, again, you have a solid foundation for success and improvement. And I think that if you just look at their trajectory overall since Bronco got there, while they're not recruiting at an elite level, the recruiting classes have gradually improved. And we saw, you know, the best player in their 2021 class, a four-star offensive tackle out of Alexandria named Logan Taylor. I don't know if, I don't think he's going to be in a position to be starting right away but you just you just see the talent and the foundation being laid there and I think defensively this team reminded me a lot of most Bronco Mendenhall defenses last year with the one exception being that the secondary was not great they, they had problems defending the past they had they, and some of that was COVID some of that was just poor play and I think that we're going to need to see a significant step forward there in 2021. So those are going to be some interesting spots for me to keep an eye on to see if this is a Virginia team that could maybe be a bit of a surprise in the division this year. I know we've talked about Miami and North Carolina being the top two teams and being the favorites. This is a Virginia team to me that I just, I have, again, the question about your beloved who's man, you can't quit them. These are my beloved who's I love Bronco Mendenhall. I look at this team and I say, you know what? Bronco could take this team and surprise some people in 2021. I look at this as being that third team in the coastal where if it's not North Carolina and Miami winning the division, I would bet on Virginia before anybody else in the division. You know, I don't, I don't really disagree. Um, I think just from looking at the only depth chart I could really find, they have most of their starters back on the offensive line. And, and I, I will bet on, on, on Virginia this year. So have a nice little bounce back here. They were a team that was was strongly impacted by COVID, which makes me want to throw out more of their results maybe for, for 2019 than I would with teams that did not have a lot of COVID issues. Uh, the, the one thing that really stands out to me about Virginia was just the, the number of explosive plays they allowed 
on defense. And that is not something that a typical Bronco Mendenhall defense does. And I think a lot of that was like, that's a defense that relies a lot on scheme and communication and creating pressure and knowing who to take, right? And it's a heavy zone blitz team. Mm -hmm. And that's a lot of coordination required. And I think when you had as many moving parts and inner parts, you know, coming in and out of the lineup, right. as they did that led to far too many busts. I mean, I, I've looked back here, Virginia just does not finish. I mean, they were 108th in rushing explosiveness allowed and 116th in passing explosiveness allowed. Like, that's just not something that Virginia's defenses or that Bronco Mendenhall's defenses ever do, right? Like, that's just they, – they don't do that. Um, not, not normally. Now, I mean, they, they occasionally will allow some bombs, but not to that extent. So I think you could see a real bounce back in terms of, of explosive play prevention – from UVA, and then maybe a little bit better job running the football, and that could lead to a nicer year this year. The Georgia Tech Yellow Jackets were a mercurial team because you see all the success on the recruiting trail. Uh, you know, you've got a, a good dual threat quarterback in Jeff Sims, an exciting running back in Jameer Gibbs. I mean, heck, they started the year with beating Florida State. We thought that was going to be something. You know, they also ended up getting wins against Louisville and against Duke, but man, they looked really bad at some other parts of the season, uh, including just getting a little bit beat down where it kind of looked like they might have checked out a little bit by the end. They finished three and seven. But my um, number one question and the the thing that I don't have a good answer to as we look into spring, like they didn't have a triple option transition on the defensive side of the ball. And Georgia Tech was not very good defensively. And so if you're Jeff Collins with a, a history of being a successful defensive coordinator and, you know, defense is kind of supposed to be your specialty, why was that uh, Why was that part of this transition from Paul Johnson to Jeff Collins where it seems like things have fallen by the wayside? Not that he would be able to, you know, instantly change the makeup of the players, uh, but at least, you know, what is what was his old name? The, the Minister of Mayhem? Or something like that. Yeah, he's if, if you're coming in with a tagline called the Minister of Mayhem, let's let's see Georgia Tech's defense take a step forward because you don't have some of the same built-in excuses slash explanations as you do on the offensive side of the ball, where from offensive line to putting in tight ends to to building out your offense in a far different way from the wishbone, flexbone option attack. Defensively, you really shouldn't have had uh, that much trouble being able to raise the level there. So, Jeff Collins, can you fix the defense? Will the young talent uh, flash in a way that leads this Georgia Tech team to play a little bit better? You know, these these are sort of the things that I'm uh, I'm marinating on here for the Yellow Jackets. So, sorry, go ahead, Tom. No, go. So, I I do agree with you. They didn't have a, a schematic transition to make away from the triple option, but. If you, it is hard to recruit to the triple option, especially on offense. And I do think eventually there is a bit of a, a trickle down effect to where it also becomes a little bit harder to recruit to the triple option on defense because the good defensive recruits see that the good offensive recruits don't want to play in that offense because nobody in the NFL runs anything close to that. And they're like, eh, I don't know, maybe, maybe I shouldn't consider Georgia Tech. Uh, so I, I think that there was a bit of a talent issue on, on that side of the ball. I know they had some injuries early in the season um, they were better on defense than they were on offense. But I, I agree with you. Like, I think this is an important year for Georgia tech. They, they have to find a way. 
you know, I, I don't know. I'm just not that worried about defense with Jeff Collins, I guess. But my concern more is on the offensive side of the ball. They've got to find a way to play pitch and catch. They have explosive guys. They can hit some home runs. Man, they just strike out a ton. They're, they need to hit some singles at some point. And, and I know I'm an explosive play guy, but, man, like this is pretty bad. They were had a 54% completion rate as a team. Like you can't – that's just too many <laughs> balls on yeah. the ground, man. Yeah, I, I think that like defensively to those concerns, I, I, I thought they could improve at the linebacker spot in particular. But I think sometimes like one of the more interesting things for me when I'm trying to break down like what a team does in the transfer portal – is like if you just look at a recruiting class, a lot of the times it's just filling spots based on what's who's graduating, who's moving on, and what we need. I feel like the transfer portal gives you a better idea of what a coaching staff sees as the more immediate problems that they need to address. And if you look, Georgia Tech brought in nine transfers. Four of them are linebackers or defensive ends. So I think that that is an area where the coaching staff and Jeff Collins itself feels like, yeah, we need to get better. We're bringing in some more bodies, more competition for that, more re- you know, ready-made ACC players to guys to give us more depth. So I think that we do need to see some improvement there. But going back to what you were saying, but about the offense and the completion rate, I need to see Jeff Sims take a big step forward because there there was – you see all the talent there in, as a freshman. And obviously, as a freshman quarterback, you're going to be inconsistent. But he needs to improve with a lot of his decisions because if you look at the numbers for Georgia Tech's offensive line last year, it wasn't great. But you see, you know, like they were 66th in line yards. They were 51st on passing down line yards. But they were also stuff rate 113th, standard down sack rate 112th. What that tells me is you have a quarterback who is taking holding on to the ball for too long and kind of just playing around in the pocket and not seeing what's there quick enough and either making the decision to get the hell out or getting rid of the ball. So I think that that is something that Georgia Tech needs to see from Sims, and I think that's probably going to be a huge focus on over the spring, over the summer, and into fall camp is getting him to diagnose defenses and find the open receiver and get his reads quicker and get the ball out of there because he takes way too many sacks. Agree. I, I like Jeff Sims. Um, I, I saw him as a recruit a lot. I, I think he's definitely a guy who has a lot of – a lot of talent. I think he's a hard worker. He just he may take some time, so we'll we'll see how that works out there. But I, I think this could be a team that could take a step forward this year. I mean they they're certainly not the worst team in, in, in the division. I, I I don't think. No, uh, I don't think that this next team is the worst team in the division. Uh, hello, if you would like to come and buy some Pitt Panther stock, it's at a very reasonable price as it normally is around this time of year. But if you do, don't do it just because Kenny Pickett's back. But shout out to you, Kenny Pickett, because you're walking out of here with all of the records. You're walking out of here with all of the totals. And Kenny Pickett is really what I think that this offense is going to have to lean on. Now, they, I think what Pitt would like to do is be able to uh, have a, a pretty solid run game. They'd like to build up their offensive line, and then they would like that to set up uh, some of the pass where you do have Jordan Addison coming in as a sophomore flashed at times, a little bit inconsistent as a freshman, but I, I look at the skill positions and I don't know for sure that uh, you've got anything reliable. Now, defensively, you are losing uh, a lot of production specifically with two very, 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 very good defensive linemen in Rashad Weaver and Patrick Jones, though you do have Servassier Dennis uh, coming back after tying for the team lead in tackles Paris Ford, also opted out like midway through the season and ultimately with like some big picture pit stuff. And this is total 
you know, feel not based in numbers, probably going to lead me astray, but they lost four straight in the middle of the season. And in that run is when Paris Ford, a guy who Pat Narduzzi describes as like the energy guy, the enthusiasm guy, not to mention being, you know, one of the more talented defensive players, he opts out. And I look at Pitt and I'm like, you know, one, two, three Cancun. It is pack the bags time. Like they are just going to be done. And they finished by winning three of their final four games. And so to be able to get that buy-in from some of those backups, the fact that, I mean, again, like I'm probably being misled here, but whatever you want to say, whether it's culture, whether it's mentality, like whatever they've built in there, there seems to be some some real pride within that pit program. They finished six and five. And so uh, as we go into this season, it's a it's an easy thing to just say like a, a, a pit dark horse. I don't think Pitt's going to be a dark horse, but I think that Pitt... Uh, as is tradition, will be an impossible out and make things very, very painful for you. Yeah. I mean, I I think, honestly, if Kenny Pickett hadn't come back, I think I'd be kind of really worried about Pitt this year. But I do think that him returning gives them at least a decent floor where they're going to be, like you said, Chip, that team that week in and week out, it's going to be capable of at least being a huge pain in the butt to somebody that you don't expect it to be a pain in the butt against. And it's probably going to knock off a team or two where you don't really see it coming. But what the thing about Pitt last year when I was watching them, like in recent years, this is a team that it's not had like amazing offensive lines, but it has sent players to the NFL. It's had players drafted off of its lines. That line last year was God awful. Just really really bad. I don't remember watching a game of Pitt where I felt like that offensive line was winning the battle 40% of the time, let alone half the time. And I think that is a huge area of concern going into 2021. And that is something where I think we're going to need to see a major improvement because the skill position, there are questions. Kenny Pickett is solid, but if you're not being able to block for anybody, it's really not going to matter. And I also agree on the defensive side of the ball, that was a terrific front. And they lost a lot of key players from that. But I do think I, when it comes to Pat Narduzzi teams, even with the amount of people that are leaving, I always have a certain level of confidence that a Pat Narduzzi defense is going to at least be competent. So I'm not too worried about that. But I just look at Pitt and I say, man, that offensive line needs to get better. They're going to struggle. The good news is I feel like the schedule has a soft enough start to where maybe they can get some things figured out before they jump into conference play because they do have a non-con against Tennessee, but it is a Tennessee team with a whole new coaching staff itself, which could still be kind of, you know, figuring itself out. And the rest is UMass, Western Michigan, and New Hampshire, which should be three pit wins. But again, it's pit. Maybe they lose to New Hampshire. Who knows? So, Tom, I think I figured out one of the reasons why their offensive line was so poor. They had one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. They had nine guys play at least 130 snaps on the offensive line last year. Wow. Also, Kenny Pickett uh, missed... I think he missed at least the middle two games, mm-hmm. the Miami and, and Notre Dame game. Did he miss? He got hurt in Boston College. Remember that, that game went to overtime. He was limping around in the ankle big time, uh, and, and BC ended up winning that, I, I think, in, in OT. He came back, I think, for Florida State, and, and they smoked them. Um, they played really well once he came back, with the exception of the Clemson game. But at that point, Clemson was hitting its stride. I mean, once, once Pickett came back, 41-17 over Florida State, 47-14, over the Hokies and 34-20 over Georgia Tech. I I think Pickett is a decent player. Mm-hmm. Um that offensive line I think almost just by like 
progression to the mean has to be better. Just it's unlikely you have that many guys play 130 plus snaps in a given year. So staying healthy there would be big. But dude, it's hard to just keep finding three-star defensive linemen who turned out to be like awesome NFL guys. But he's been and doing Pitt, it for six years. He's been doing it though forever though. Yeah. No doubt. <laughs> Jalen Twyman, Alon Price, Shakir Soto. Yeah. Like, it, like it just keeps going. It's nuts. Look, he's clearly found an inefficiency there. Yeah. And he like he knows exactly what he's looking for. If They develop it exactly the way they want to and it fits in their system incredibly well. That still doesn't mean it's easy or it's automatic is what I'm saying. Like, like it's still harder to do what they're doing than it is to go out and and like you know be in Alabama and sign the five star where there's fewer steps from getting him to five star mm-hmm. to you know freakazoid. So I I do have some concerns about the defense, I guess, but yeah, the concern's still more on the off side of the ball. I I definitely don't think they're anywhere close to the bottom team in the league though. Um, not to put you on the spot, but I remember from just sort of for Pitt's twenty twenty one recruiting class. Uh, I'm not expecting because of the player development sort of role that we've seen throughout this, uh, throughout this Pat Narduzzi program. I, I wonder, I remember them being a big winner. I remember they did a pretty good job in Pennsylvania and that they were recruiting at a much higher level than some of their peers in the ACC. That, it's probably not going to have a huge impact on 2021. Correct me if I'm wrong, but was that just sort of across the board or was there any one position where that group uh, stands out to you? Defensive well, their top line. four rated signees are defensive linemen. Sick. Mm-hmm. Let's go. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's because I was just looking at it. Like they got Elliot Donald, a four-star defensive tackle, Naquan Brown, a four-star def- weak side defensive end, and Naki Johnson, a four-star defensive end. So I feel like now Narduzzi's getting into the four-star place where maybe he's, he's shortening up that transition period a little bit. And Dorian Ford, who was a top 500 guy, you know, like, like if you're Pitt, a top 500 dude in the nation is still somebody you're very interested in. Mm-hmm. Nice. Uh, and bringing things to a close here in the Coastal Division, it was one of the worst uh, seasons for David Cutcliffe as a head coach. The Duke Blue Devils went two and nine last year. Chase Bryce shows up with, uh, you know, all of the Grayson High School bona fides and all the Clemson National Championship rings. And buddy, he was so nice. He was so friendly to the opponents. He would just give them the ball. He would give them the ball by dropping it. He would give them the ball by throwing it. But this Duke team turned the ball over a ton. And it's disappointing because when I look on the defensive side of the ball, there's a lot of players I like. I mean, Chris Rumpf is going to play in in the NFL. Michael Carter, the second, very good defensive back. Uh, Drew Jordan, another uh, defensive lineman who I thought was really good. I... I just think that last year they had the kind of defense where if the offense was, you know, capable and just could take care of the ball or run it a little bit better, they ran it really well against Syracuse from, as you mentioned in the Atlantic episode, once we figured out, oh, we can just run the ball against this new 335. They don't know how to stop it. So uh, I I don't know. Defensively, I I hope that they've got some answers there because those are some really good players that are going to be gone. We believe that Gunnar Holberg will be the new quarterback. Uh, Mateo Durant steps up as the feature back after the loss of Deion Jackson. And there is one defensive player who I want to mention just because he is still around and I think he's really good, and that is linebacker Shaka Hayward. Uh, Got some, some good bloodlines as the cousin of the cam hayward that plays for the steelers which i guess that would make him the nephew of craig hayward who ironhead yeah played for the steelers way back in the late craig hayward um so where where are we at with the blue devils and uh and and uh you know where are you at with cut at this point 
I want I want to go back to what you mentioned with the turnovers because I want to make it I want to give some real context to the listeners who might not be aware because like Chip Chip was not being he was not exaggerating he was not being superlative with the amount of turnovers that Duke had Duke last season had thirty nine turnovers in 11 games the next most turnovers by any one team in the entire country also an ACC team Georgia Tech with 25 (laughs) so they had 14 more turnovers than the next closest team they finished with a turnover margin of negative 19 which not surprisingly was also the worst in the country so when you look at that if you just look at turnover luck because of those 39 turnovers 20 of them were lost fumbles (laughs) That there has to be some regression for that, which you would think might be worth a win or two on its own. It was so bad. So, yeah, I I, I think that this is a Duke team that was not as bad as it looked in 2020, but I don't know how good it is either. Like when I when I try to figure out this division going into the season, it's like, can is there any other team that you can look at and you could see Duke confidently finishing ahead of? In no. the division, no, no, Tom, that that's it. If you look at their expected turnover margin, this this first of all, I, I call Duke a zoom out team, and by zoom out team, I mean like you're looking at a chart that you've made, and you have to hit zoom out because they're so far off the planet, right? And like like you can't capture them in, in, in the screenshot that you're trying to share on Twitter. So like Duke last year, especially with that, was was an absolute zoom out team for me. The problem was their actual turnover margin was 127th in the country. If you look at their expected turnover margin, which you know kind of neutralizes their luck, they were so bad that they were still 127th in the nation. So give Duke random luck, and they're still 127th in the country. I okay. Look, if we take 2020 at face value, then I don't really know if there's a whole lot of reason to believe that that Duke's going to get back to where they were under, under Cutcliffe because this. If you think this is a real season and not a, not a COVID product, this was just unbelievably bad. The ACC very rarely has teams finish outside the top 100 in SB+. You know, Duke w- w- was, was that. Here's their percentile performances, right? 17%, 4%, 7%, 11%, 91% at Syracuse, which was the worst team in the league, 11% at NC State, 100% Charlotte. And then they just absolutely quit on the rest of the year. Zero, one, zero, and one to finish. Like they could make big improvements and and still go, you know, three and nine, four, like 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 four and eight. I I don't know, man. I they didn't block anybody. They didn't have any quarterback play. They, they had a lot of the run. They had a lot of injuries on the offensive line as well. And like you're at Duke, you're not looking at serious depth. Like when you got to go to the backups, the, there's going to be a significant drop off without a doubt. Yeah, no, they they had a. You're, you're exactly right, Chip. I mean, just looking at they they didn't have quite as many guys play like 100 plus snaps like Pitt did, but they definitely had a lot of dudes playing snaps. Um, and the results were just as terrible as Pitt's for the most part, too. Yeah. Well, like is it was so depressing in some of those press conferences because David Cutcliffe and all of the you, you know all of the football that he's watched, you know, he's forgotten more football, blah 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 blah. But like all of his experience and and these reporters, like, so do you guys practice not fumbling? <laughs> like it was so frustrating i'm sure to be in those shoes he's like yes of course we practice not fumbling the thing that we are doing uh worse than anybody else in the entire country like it was uh it was not a good year without a doubt so 
Chip, let me ask you this because you're, you're you're there in the triangle or nearby. Duke was the first team to pull out of the basketball tournament, right? right. Like they were they were the one that, that didn't want to go forward with it. Is there any chance that they were also perhaps like the strictest team in terms of COVID protocol and 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 that kind of stuff? And and I don't know. I, I'm not, no, without a doubt. And the whole how uni- do you say this? The like, whole like university was way. no. The whole university campus was unbelievably strict way stricter than any of its um predis- in any of it like stricter than nc state stricter than north carolina the the way that they handled their business um was 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 absolutely like as tightly guarded uh as any recommendations that you had at the university level from what i was able to see it's just a pretty damn big drop off in terms of, of, of team quality from 19 to 20 how much do you ascribe that to maybe how they handle COVID protocols and maybe how that sort of de-emphasized the importance of the season in, in relation to the you know overall things happening in the country, whereas some schools, it's like, hey, football's still first, guys, right? Like, we're going to have COVID protocols, but we're not going to have COVID protocols. Right. Yeah, right. Yeah, no, I, that's I, why you watch this on YouTube. So you see Tom and I waking at each other. <laughs> <laughs> YouTube.com slash cover three also stream us on Spotify. No, without a doubt. And the problem is that there's just not even even if they take a different approach, like say we still have we we might still be COVID testing in the fall. I don't think we will, but let's just say there's still some protocols. Duke will take them just as seriously, and uh, the problem is even if there's no protocols, I just don't see Duke without having COVID on the brain still being definitively better than anybody in the division, and that's tough. Yeah, the offense has been bad, really bad for two consecutive years. Yeah. So that's kind of my question. I think defensively they can bounce back some. Yep. Yeah. Well, they need quarterback to step up. Come on, Gunner. Let's go. Let's go, Duke. <laughs> Don't forget to uh, go and s- click that link in the description if you want to sign up to uh, to get with Gary Parrish and Matt Norlander uh, for that very, very cool very cool exercise for the bracket engineer. You can follow him on Twitter at Bud Elliott three. You can follow him at Tom Fernelli. You can follow me at chip underscore Patterson. Gentlemen, thank you very much. Thank you. Picture this, it's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road, the steeper the better. Because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive, so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones, so we'll never lose touch with civilization, and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic? And conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai. There's joy in every journey.